Hello everyone, it's September 14th, 2021. This week we got House Budget Reconciliations, a better understanding of what it will cost SpaceX if you're interested in a Starlink subscription, and Chang'e 5 is popping up all over the place. It's an eclectic week in spaceflight. Let's get to it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 325 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, top of the show, I guess we should talk about Firefly, because uh, we didn't follow up on that, did we? Wait, isn't it? Mm. Isn't it Dennis's 100th episode? Oh, 150th. 150th, yay! Oh, yay. <laughs> okay, fi- fi- okay, sorry. Sorry, no, enough about Dennis. Let's talk about Firefly. <laughs> <laughs> so, last week we talked about, you know, like obviously the failure of that launch, but we didn't get to the exact cost because we didn't know, although we did get some information towards the end of the show but i forgot to include that in you know the final edit i think i kind of got rid of it but what we do know now is that there was some kind of an electrical issue that caused the propellant main valve to shut down like or to simply close and then that terminated thrust so that's what the issue was it was not the engine but it was the propellant valve oh man it's it sucks that you can (laughs) i'm imagining you know having a, a wire that's uh lost its insulation and just shorts out or something like <laughs> yeah something kind of simple Oof. yeah, yeah. A, an electrical issue that shuts down an entire engine is not not great that should not be able to happen yeah i guess a uh what they call an uneventful shutdown is the best kind of shutdown you can have if you're gonna have one yeah an, an eventful shutdown is much more explodey Okay, so Ben, you you have created a segment called NASA and the Giant Budget Reconciliation. With apologies <laughs> to to Mr. Dahl. <laughs> James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> I was about to say it sounds familiar to me like a book or something, mm. but I couldn't figure it out. But okay. <laughs> so the Giant Peach in this case, the Giant Peach in question is the Budget Reconciliation. I'm not sure about all of uh, you know the allegorical parallels since I never really read the book or saw the movie. So you're going to have to explain the rest of it. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I, I'm not a huge uh, James and the Giant Peach fan. It just the the cadence of the sentence sounded good to me. Okay, yeah. so so let me give you a quick summary of the political mechanisms that are behind um, the the U.S. Congress actually being able to give uh, NASA some money. I just, every time we talk about politics, I feel like I have to give a little bit of background just because it's super confusing um, to Americans. And I know that a lot of (laughs) non-Americans listen. (laughs) So I've done this once or twice before. I don't think I've talked about budget reconciliation. uh, So hopefully this isn't going to be super repetitive and boring. But in the U.S., most bills that go through the U.S. Senate can be blocked by the minority party using a filibuster. So the idea is that both houses of the of the Congress set their own procedural rules, and the Senate originally had the ability to call a vote uh, that required a, a simple majority, and that vote said, let's end discussion and vote on the bill or vote on the, the the last question. And the rule was actually struck off because it wasn't used very often, and they kind of thought it was redundant. The thing is, it wasn't redundant. When they got rid of it, there turned out to be no other way to end discussion about a, a question, about a bill. And so now what you can do is if you are the the minority party um and whatever is up for a vote requires you know a certain number of people and you you can't meet that number of votes 
all you have to do is just keep talking about it and nobody can force you to stop until you know you get to the end of the of the session and it expires um and so you can you can just block a bill from being voted on that's that's called a filibuster the other side of congress then, is the house of Representatives. yeah sorry I, and i could be wrong so maybe you know we can verify this but my understanding was that there was a different change to the classic filibuster some number of years ago so they don't actually even have to do a proper filibuster they just declare their intention to do it and then they and then everything's dead in the water so it's like the most yeah. cynical terrible wow. thing um yeah and, and like I, the thing is like filibusters are like always controversial like when they exist within a, a body politic but i, I you know, if you're going to do something like that, right? Like you have to balance the power of the minority and the power of the majority. Like it's, you shouldn't be able to have a, a majority party be able to do whatever it wants without control. And, and so the question is, how do you, how do you balance this? And, you know, filibusters actually kind of make sense to me when they're, you know, a, a traditional filibuster where you actually have to stand and talk for a certain number of hours. And if you stop talking, uh, mm -hmm. your filibuster fails, like requiring I mean, a, stand. a, yeah, requiring like a physical feat from somebody is kind of cool, mm -hmm. uh, you yeah. know, in, in an ableist way, right? Like it's kind of cool that you're asking for a, a physical sacrifice from somebody, even if it seems as trivial as standing on your feet for, you know, four or eight hours or whatever. Like it, it, it's actually not a super easy thing to do. And, and just the, the idea of having to go through that kind of helps tamp down the power a little bit. Not, not enough, but you know, I think it's kind of, it's kind of a cool mechanism, but in, in the U S Senate, it actually happened by mistake, right? Like, <laughs> that wasn't uh the plan um mike in the chat says surely the lid on this can of worms isn't necessary uh, yeah exactly <laughs> I, I love it okay so um the the other side of congress is the house of representatives and they do indeed limit the power of the filibuster today um it, it's 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 not that you can't ever filibuster it's just that there are more instances where you can't there are more instances where they can just say Screw it. We're done talking. Let's proceed to a vote. And to, to, you know, be fair and complete, like there are some types of Senate action, um, that are immune from the filibuster. And I guess this isn't to be fair and complete. This is kind of the, the point here, actually. So, so the point is that certain types of actions, um, you can move on from the discussion period with a simple majority vote. And one of those things is setting the the annual budget like the annual budget vote and then in addition there's a type of like budget update called uh budget reconciliation um and that also is uh, uh immune from the filibuster um there there are a lot of little details we could go into here but this isn't a political podcast as much as i love procedure um so normally uh budget re reconciliation can only happen once a year because you only set up budget once a year um but in this case the senate parliamentarian who is a, a designated senator who interprets and enforces the procedural rules that the senate writes for itself um decided that they can actually do a second budget re reconciliation this year um one happened before the administration handover and then the parliamentarian said okay we can do a second one uh after the handover and so obviously this is like a really powerful procedural mechanism because it allows you to pass uh, a spending bill with a simple majority which is the only way that 
that the Senate is going to be able to do that because the Senate right now is, you know, quote unquote balanced. Uh, there are 50, uh, members of the minority party, the, the Republicans, there's 50 of the majority, the, uh, the Democrats and they, I mean, they're not even a majority and minority really, but, but in, in reality, um, if it's a simple majority vote, the Democrats are the majority because they can call in the tie-breaking vote of the vice president, uh, who, uh, who votes, uh, Democrat. So the reconcil, the second reconciliation bill has been earmarked as a way to fund COVID relief, um, in this balanced Senate where, um, the minority party, the Republicans don't want to spend any additional money on, on COVID. And it's kind of a weird thing because it's, it's a budget bill, but it's being used as a, as a relief bill. And even though it's a relief bill, it's still a budget bill. So it encompasses everything that the budget normally encompasses in this case or, or uh, pertinent to this conversation, NASA's budget is included. So all that to say, uh, we got some information on what NASA's uh, part of the budget looks like in a, in a, a draft version of the bill. There's uh, $4 billion uh, set aside for repair, recapitalization, and modernization of physical infrastructure and facilities. $4 billion is a lot of money. It's less than Bill Nelson asked for. He asked for $5 billion, and he actually named uh, Michoud as, an, as a specific example, even though there are a lot of uh, infrastructure kind of things that NASA needs to spend money on. But did you guys know that Michoud actually has holes in the roof of the building where the SLS core is being assembled? Nope. Only after reading that article in Space News. No idea. That's wild. Yeah. Oh, uh, Deathkin in the chat. Thank you. I appreciate this. Uh, p- the parliamentarian is not a senator. It's, it's an appointed position. That's totally correct. I, I don't know why I got into my head that it was a senator. Um, and it's interesting because when you hear people talk about the, the parliamentarian, they're very rarely named. Right now it's Elizabeth Donahue. Thank you, Delta V. Um, but, uh, but, but they, they do, the, the parliamentarian usually isn't named and it kind of feels like this, you know, kind of secret, secluded kind of position. And it is because they hold a lot of power, um, mm-hmm. in sort of this weird behind the scenes way. Um, so yeah, so, uh, Michoud before, uh, Hurricane Ida, right? It's Ida, uh, before Hurricane Ida came through and, and, you know, tore, uh, a bunch of damage, uh, into Louisiana, uh, it was already ho- a holy location. <laughs> mm. And so now it's just worse. Um, so yeah, 4 billion, not 5 billion, but, uh, 4 billion will still go uh, a fairly long way. I'm assuming $388 million, uh, of this drafted, uh, budget, uh, is set aside for climate change research and development. And what's really cool to me is that $225 million of that is specifically for the sustainable aviation efforts that NASA has going. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier about that. The aviation industry is uh, never going to be the same. Um, I, I think it's a pretty safe bet that we will never see uh, airplane prices drop uh, to what they were before the pandemic. I, I don't think it's ever going to happen. And the way that aviation works right now is wholly incompatible with sustainable technologies. I mean, we th- right now, 
the airlines could not swap out sustainable vehicles and continue to make a profit. It doesn't work. So could you define like exactly what you mean by sustainable? Yeah, uh, electric or hydrogen basically is what it comes down to. Or it could also be biofuels that um, qualifies as sustainable yes, aviation fuel. Yeah, technically biofuels are, but in reality, biofuels uh, are another lie like the plastics recycling mm-hmm. industry. Basically, the, the petroleum industry is a big fan of biofuels because it allows them to basically do what they've been doing, just mining farms instead of you know offshore oil rigs. Right. Um, but biofuels are incredibly inefficient to produce i mean it just it makes absolutely no sense yeah no, um, and i don't mean that to defend like, yeah like to yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. Them is a good thing but i'm saying yeah. that like yeah this this money could be earmarked and most of it could end up going towards just yeah exactly exactly I, th- I think that's a fantastic point to make um but yeah i mean it you know th- right now the aviation industry is not going to survive uh peak oil you know, if we've already hit peak oil, then they're not going to last for much longer. If we haven't yet hit it, um, then uh, then they're not going to last much longer after that. It, ju- it just doesn't make sense. It's too expensive to fly. Um, and in reality, we really need to switch to rail. It just makes way more sense, even though it's a, you know, it's a little slower. So it's a little more roundabout. It's harder to do, but, you know, it, it actually is compatible with, um, you know, an electric grid. Um, we, we can, we can do hydrogen in the skies. We will do hydrogen, you know, in airplanes, but, uh, but that, that's not the only thing that we need to worry about. There, there's, you know, the actual rest of the airplane to worry about, not just the engines and fuel tanks. And, you know, like I could go on for ages, but please go watch. I think it's practical engineering has got an episode on, uh, uh, on renewable aviation and it, or sustainable aviation. And it's really fantastic. Um, they talk a lot about, uh, blended wing aircraft and why they will be a requirement for, uh, hydrogen, uh, propulsion, but also why they're a, a, a better way to build aircraft anyway. So yeah, 225 million, uh, for sustainable aviation and then, uh, $0 billion for HLS, right? Nelson asked, uh, Congress for 5.4 billion, uh, additional dollars for HLS in order to be able to do a, a second, um, HLS, uh, contractor selection. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about this ad nauseum. <laughs> But, um, you know, that's something that I, I think needs to happen, and it, it is not included in this bill. With, with that said, HLS's near-term fate is, you know, not yet set in stone. The reconciliation bill, as it stands, is almost certainly not going to pass the Senate, um, right? We have 51 uh, Democrats, uh, or f- 51 Democratic votes, uh, if all 50 senators uh, vote together. If they don't, you don't get that tie-breaking vote, and it doesn't matter because that's 49 yes votes and, and 51 no votes. And and right now, um, because this isn't just a budget bill, it's a, a COVID relief bill rolled into a budget bill, um, there is at least one senator who we're pretty sure is not going to vote for it, mostly because he said that he won't. <laughs> so. This isn't the amount of money that NASA is going to get this year. Honestly, NASA probably is not going to get a funding update until next year. Um, and hopefully at that point, 
they'll they'll be able to uh, secure more funding for HLS, um, and uh, we won't have to see uh, blue Sioux Congress like uh, Mike in the chat is suggesting, <laughs> uh, which I, I would uh, love to see and would not be surprised uh, to see them try. But yeah, so that's that's the budget. Uh, it, woof, right? Like I, I can't say anything more than like what what a cluster, right? It just it's it's horrible all the way around. But I don't see anything better happening anytime soon. It will be interesting to see how the HLS funding shakes out ultimately. I agree, and like the the whole question is like, you know, how is it going to shake out? But in reality, like. No one's saying that it has to shake out. You know, we could get to the point where Blue Origin just holds everything up for so long that like something major happens instead. You know, like who who knows? I just I just want to go to the moon, guys. I just is that too much to ask? I just want to go to the moon. <laughs> um, all right. Well, on that salutary note, uh, I guess we should move on to a different story. So more space centric, but still a little bit of money, a little bit of finance involved here, but uh, yeah, more privatized, which is better, or at least a much easier to understand, I would think. Um, so let's talk about Starlink antennas. So the last time we talked about this, I think it was like a short and sweet, and we were discussing about how, you know, the terminals in order to receive, you know, your internet from space, uh, those are expensive. And so they're actually being very heavily subsidized by SpaceX. So we have a slight correction from Ben Hallert uh, a couple weeks ago, and we missed mentioning it last week. But this is regarding a short and sweet that we had, I guess, two episodes ago. So he says, Ray Shotwell and Starlink, SpaceX heavily subsidizes the user terminals. They apparently cost something like three times as much as they sell for. I think she was talking about cutting the cost of the terminals, not the price to the end users. Okay. Yeah. And like, duh, we we should have we should have figured that one out real quick. I don't know why we didn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, I think this is a better week to talk about it because uh, not shot well. I believe it was um, their uh, SpaceX's CFO this week actually did um, a press conference, I believe, and they said uh, we certainly hope to be able to pass the savings on to the customer in the not too distant future, but it's not happening right now. So yeah, like that should have been obvious, and it's been confirmed if it wasn't obvious. So thank you, Ben, for for that correction. And and we got a little more information about this uh, rejiggering from yeah Brett Johnson, the chief financial officer of SpaceX, who um, did a panel discussion at at Satellite Twenty Twenty One and the 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 conference. And so what did they say? Right. So right now they're uh, they're producing five thousand terminals a week. I, did you guys have any idea it was that high? Nope. That escalated really quickly to quote, <laughs> to quote Anchorman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For real. And, and it's set to continue escalating. They're hoping to increase the number of terminals that they produce by multiples in the next few months. Um, so like 10K, 15K, 20K a week. They are actually building a new version that they're going to start, uh, producing, I think in the next couple of weeks. Um, and basically, this new version does two big things. First of all, it modifies their bill of material to avoid some bottlenecks, which will help them increase the pace. But it also reduces the cost uh, of the components that they're purchasing or, or the the amount of work it takes to assemble um, the terminal or both uh, is probably the most likely. Um, and so by doing that, they're able to cut the cost by a little over 
half, a, a little more than, than 50%, um, which sounds like it's beating Shotwell's uh, stated goal that we talked about two weeks ago. Um, and, and that's just in the next couple of weeks. That's that's pretty good. I don't think we mentioned it, um, but uh, they are currently charging about $500 per terminal. 499 But um, yeah, and so, and they're costing, what, three times as much, so... That's what that's what Ben suggests, and I think he's probably right. Somewhere in that ballpark, I know I'd heard at least one person report that they take a two thousand dollar hit on each one, mm-hmm. and so whether they cost yeah. fifteen hundred or cost two thousand, somewhere, yeah, in that ballpark. But I wonder how much of a hit they're really taking, because I mean, for a subscription-based business like this, isn't the money coming from the subscription? I mean, isn't that how it generally works? That you charge very little for the actual hardware? Yeah, it depends on the subscription price versus the operational price and the um, amortized you know, mm-hmm. construction price actually putting all those satellites up in orbit. Like, we, we don't know. I mean, uh, Starlink Internet is is relatively cheap for you know the amount of launches they've been doing. So it, it could be one of those things where, you know, they're, they're not looking to break even for you know, a decade or something like that. Who knows? It says currently the cost is $99 per month. Uh, so that's how much they're paying for the actual service. Yeah, that's less than I pay for cable internet. I, I pay for very fast cable internet, but... Oh, actually, no. No, no. It was in California. Here, I'm paying like 50 bucks for screaming fast internet. <laughs> oh, wow. That's really good. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. Um, I'm really lucky. But still, I mean, like, I, I have paid more than $100 a month. <laughs> hmm. Like it, that's that's not crazy. All right, and now a third topic this week. All right, so Chang'e Five uh, returned to the moon, and apparently, so this is a mysterious space happening. Um, <laughs> Some of the reporting is being a little cheeky and kind of referring to it as mysterious and like ooh and spooky, but it is true though that the uh, the people who are operating the mission, um, which is the the Beijing Aerospace Flight Control Center or BACC, I'll just call them Bach. I suppose that seems to work. <laughs> so the Bach, uh, they have been secret or they at least have not publicly saying what they're doing with the spacecraft. This was such a fun time to be alive. Uh, we, we know about this because of amateur uh, satellite trackers. And so in particular, uh, Daniel Estevez and Scott Tilly, as well as uh, an independent astronomy software developer, Bill Gray, all kind of collectively used observations as well as data analysis to to notice that Chang'e 5 left where it was, which uh, was one of the Lagrange points. I forget which one in L2. particular. Oh, sorry, L2? L1. Like, L1. Was that L1? Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, so it left L1 evidently and was heading for uh, a flyby of the moon. And we don't know what its plans are. And so we're speculating of the different locations where there are the different types of orbits it could be doing. Uh, the, there's a very big space conference, uh, called GLEX. Real quick, before you get, before you get into the options, which I can't wait to talk about, um, let me give some dates real quick, uh, just to give some, some context here. So, um, Chang'e 5, when we, when we say that we're talking about the orbiter, right? Cause it already landed and then returned samples to Earth. Um, hmm. so the, the orbiter, uh, got to the L1 point on the 15th of March. And it departed L1 this week. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, so it took 88 days to go from the moon to L1. Um, and it's going to take roughly the same to, to get back. Actually, I think it already flew past the moon. Yes. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, oh, it, so it, they, it, they screamed home. They didn't take 88 days to get back. They, they're like, Phew. that's right. This, I mean, there's not much official reporting post flyby. 
So mm-hmm. what we know about it now, we have to get basically from these uh, these accounts on Twitter, you know, yeah. uh, these various people that are tracking it. But yeah, it it, it, it sounds like the, uh, the flyby should have taken place. On the 9th, actually. Over the weekend, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so now that it's done its flyby, where, where is it going? So ultimately, uh, Bach hasn't announced anything yet. Hopefully they will soon. And of course, uh, yeah, right. Uh, Andrew Jones would be a great resource <laughs> if they do <laughs> say anything or if he's able to tease out any of this information. But, um, there are options. Uh, one of them that kind of was ruled out at a large, uh, space conference called Glex, uh, a, a person on the team, uh, on the Changa 5 team said that Venus was uh, a bit too far for them to go to. Uh, it's all about how much propellant they have. But whether they return to an Earth-Sun Lagrange point, an Earth-Moon Lagrange point, uh, probably, I'm not so sure about them going into lunar orbit, but <laughs> that, you know, might be a thing. But I think the, the most interesting option, if they have the fuel to go and check out, would be to go and visit the uh, the asteroid uh, 469219 uh, Kamo Oulua, which is the target of China's 2024 sample return mission to an asteroid they want to do. Mm, so if you didn't know that they were planning go. on something like that, they are. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is a object that is one of my favorite class of objects that I had, you know, only learned about a few years ago. It's it's what's called a quasi satellite. And I forget if I ever mentioned quasi satellites on the show before, but it's just really, really neat. Oh, is it uh, is it, it in a horseshoe orbit? Is is that the same it's, thing? It's 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 like a horseshoe orbit in the sense that it's an apparent orbit from our perspective, okay. but it's not quite a horseshoe o- orbit. It's much it's it's from our perspective, it's a retrograde, uh, kind of classic, uh, you know, uh, elliptical orbit around us. And so, so cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's really just cool. a matter of, yeah, it's just a matter of, you know, the, you know, the earth and, uh, Kama'olua are both orbiting the sun and the, I mean, the semi-major axis of this asteroid is basically 1% different from the earth's semi-major axis. So it's, it's period is 366 days versus the earth's 365 and a quarter. So as, so it's always kind of near the earth. Uh, but it's not orbiting the Earth, right? It's kind of like how Hayabusa 2 approached Ryugu, where it's we're just both traveling the same direction together. But because of its different eccentricity, it appears to lag in front of us and then to the far side of us and then behind us and then to the near side. And when I say near and far, I mean relative to the sun. And so it looks like it's doing a retrograde loop around the Earth. And so that's what these quasi-satellites are. If you were to look at them from the Earth, you'd be like, oh, this thing's going around me. But no, it's not. It's, it, it is on a heliocentric orbit, just like us. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And it's a quasi-satellite, not a pseudo-satellite. I think those are ones that are temporarily captured objects. But uh, yeah, easy to mix them up because what's quasi versus pseudo? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Yeah. I mean, like it, it makes sense because it's like a resonant thing. So like it's, it's self-reinforcing. But like, holy, holy cow, is that? such a cool looking orbit i i put a a video uh into discord um mm. that shows the the earth and uh like like the orbits as with the sun at the center but the whole reference frame is rotating around with the earth mm. uh, and it just looks like there are orbits wobbling all over the place it's really cool we'll, we'll have to find out later uh exactly what's going on here but if you are interested in checking this out and you're on twitter at least i would recommend checking out scott tilly's account he, he, yeah he uses the handle uh, coastal 8049 uh, no spaces or anything and yeah it, 
the latest uh, as of this recording, right, which is uh, September 12th, uh, Sunday, uh, was that there may have been a, a, a TCM uh, maybe 10 hours ago or so. Uh, or because that would be a pretty pretty chunky TCM of uh, yeah, negative 50, 50 meters, meters per second. second. Yeah, <laughs> it, it uh-huh. could just be also a change in the, the just the parameters of uh, their how they're tracking it that uh, might be mimicking this. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's right because we'll he, he's going <laughs> off of he's going off of Doppler returns, and so he's saying, mm-hmm. yeah, if he just it could just be an attitude change that that makes the the Doppler. Uh, calculations uh, change a little. So, mm-hmm. yeah, cosine theta is messing with you somehow. Right. Yeah. Thank <laughs> So, like, yeah, here's here's why, like, this mysterious shit is so fascinating to me. It's it's because, <laughs> like, it, it's wonderful when agencies come out and tell you, hey, on this date, we're going to do this and we're doing it because of this. And here's, you know, an interview and like, like, uh, JPL, like the, uh, the Dawn. Uh, spacecraft blog was just like the best thing in the world, right? And that, that's better and that's very good. But occasionally you get things like, um, X37B and Chang'e 5 where we get absolutely nothing from the agency. And so mm-hmm. instead we get to watch very, very smart people, um, <laughs> do what they must because they can do what they can with what they have. Like, you know, it's, it's just like, it feels like all of those rough and ragged sci-fi novels where like, you know, there are people in space and they're solving problems and there's always danger. <laughs> and like, it feels like that. Like it, it really feels like science fiction, like people collecting data and, and doing things with it and telling other people. And it, it feels oddly enough more communal, like it's a different community, but it, it's mm-hmm. this wonderful relationship where people are helping each other out. And I think it's really cool. I wish everybody could act like uh, Dante Loretta, but it, it, in a world where that's not going to happen, period, um, this is this is really cool and satisfying and, and entertaining and interesting and edifying. So moving on to short and sweets, what is the first one, Ben? All right. DOD wants to go nuclear. The Department of Defense's Defense Innovation Unit, or DIU, issued a call for bids to provide small nuclear-powered engines for missions beyond Earth orbit. Beyond Earth orbit, right? Uh, The project description is relatively open-ended, asking for any or all of their objectives, which include an ISP of greater than 2,000 seconds, a delta V of greater than 10 kilometers per second, upward scalability to greater than a kilowatt worth of power, and downward scalability to less than 2,000 kilograms of dry mass. It's a big ask, but that's kind of what we expect in return for the difficulty of working with nuclear technologies. And then next up, James Webb's Space Telescope launched pushed to December. No stranger to delays, JWST is now targeting a launch on December 18th. Originally planned to launch in 2007, the recent launch date of October 31st of this year was expected to be missed as the Space Observatory still needed to be shipped from its current location in California to its launch site in Kourou, with a 10-week turnaround needed once it arrives. Furthermore, the Ariane 5 rocket that will launch JWST has also been delayed in reaching the pad. Once launched, the spacecraft will take a month to reach the L2 Lagrange point, with instruments expected to turn on two to three months after arrival. Finally, smoke detected in Zvezda module. Shortly before Russian spacewalk number 50 last Thursday, a smoke alarm went off in the Zvezda module of the ISS. 
Russian news agency RIA, citing audio communications broadcast by NASA, reported that Oleg Novitsky had seen and smelled the smoke, with the aroma of burnt plastic making it to the U.S. orbital segment, according to Thomas Pesquet. Roscosmos said that all systems were later working properly, and the EVA to outfit Nauka, which involved installing handrails and routing cables that were left unfinished after last week's spacewalk, was performed successfully. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have a couple of corrections, actually. The first one is from an anonymous source. So... Mm. Where did this come from, this mysterious source? It came from a DM. So this is in regards to um, flight termination systems and who presses the button. Um, and our source says that uh, different ranges have different FTS requirements. Federal ranges have FTS handled by the space wing. Commercial ranges like Kodiak, they actually use White Sands missile range. They contract with White Sands um to uh, to have a flight safety officer out there who can who can mm. press the button. So yeah, di- different requirements for different people, but you really like having. For me, it seems like somebody who's part of the range or part of the military pressing that button, or at least being in the loop to press that button, seems like a yeah. good idea. Mm-hmm. And partly just because it, like, you wouldn't be liable for any damages that might happen because that was out of your control. You know what I mean? Like that's their job to terminate mm-hmm. the flight. Yeah, and if and if they do it at the wrong time, that's on them. I mean, that's just kind of how I'm looking at it, a little bit more cynically. But you know, that's what I would no, do. I least. mean, I mean, it makes sense, right? You have to. Yeah. You you want to limit your your risk. Yeah, and and I I think independent of even that, although I agree with that. As far as what is appropriate for the different roles to have, whoever is responsible for really wanting it to go to orbit should probably, just as a conflict right. of interest, not be the person responsible yeah. <laughs> with terminating it for safety of, you know, potentially people on Bingo. the ground or elsewhere. And then Dennis, did you, did you have a book recommendation for us? Yes, I do. I saw this on Twitter and this was great news because this is a wonderful source and one that I used as recently as last week for the Genesis uh, This Week Spaceflight History and Asif Siddiqui's book, Beyond Earth, A Chronicle of Deep Space Exploration, 1958 to 2016. It's, it's free and it's available. Uh, so this is something that he had written uh, and NASA had published and and you could get a you could get a physical copy on you know Amazon or whatever bookstore you like to use uh, to shop from, but you can just download the PDF and it is incredible. It's just just a wonderful resource. It's it just goes through essentially every deep space mission ever <laughs> up to 2016. And there's 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 wonderful pictures. They are you know sh- sharp and to the point. That, you know it, it's a it's a it's not exactly something I think you'd want to kind of just read from front page to last. But, you know, if, if you had a physical copy or you print this out, it would I think it would be ideal as a coffee table book is that kind of style. But the PDF is free and available and it's written by a history professor at Fordham uh, who is currently actually uh, visiting in Princeton right now as a visiting lecturer and so or visiting professor. So really cool person uh, and someone I think I'm going to want to check out uh, what else they do because there's talks that they've given that look very interesting <laughs> uh, online. Yeah, the the cover was done by Ariel Waldman, who's uh, awesome. And so I wonder if she did some of the other illustrations in the book. Yeah, they, they are beautiful. Let's move on to this week in space flight history. And we have a lot of winners, so more than I would have expected. Uh, so I guess the clue wasn't too hard. The winners are Ben Hallert, the Greek, Christian Lowe, Deskin Miller, Hot Stuff, McTonnell Potts, Coaster Gallery, Ryan Rigner, and Bill Boabob. 
Uh, so that's a lot. So the clue was Virginia is for lovers of space. The event was the Orbital Sciences first launch of the Cygnus cargo vehicle to the International Space Station in 2013. And I'm going to talk, I guess, a little bit about Orbital Sciences, but now they are under Northrop Grumman or they have been completely subsumed by Northrop, I think. But I, I think we can still say just Orbital. Yeah. So the clue is uh, Virginia is for lovers of space. And so a lot of people didn't get it, but uh, yes, you know, this does launch from Wallops, which is in Virginia, but also the reason why it's for lovers is because that is their tourism slogan. I thought that everyone knew that. It kind of became like a thing in pop culture, um, but maybe not. I think only one person got that. So, yeah, um, if you never heard. It's not on the license plate, is it? Is that on their license plate of Virginia? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, at least it, it it was last time I was there. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm misremembering. But First, I want to talk about the actual Cygnus itself. So we've all seen it. There are two main components. And we're talking about here, uh, because we're talking about this very first launch, we're talking about the standard version, uh, not the enhanced one, uh, which comes, I think, four launches later. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, uh, you have um, a pressurized cargo module. It has an, an internal volume of 18.9 cubic meters. It has a payload capacity of 2,000 kilograms. Then you have, of course, the service module, um, and that is actually based on Orbital's Geostar satellite bus. Um, and it uses a helium pressurized monomethyl hydrazine and a nitrogen tetroxide propellant. Uh, so that's just a quick overview there. And it has, this version has the folding out solar arrays, but the new ones are those circular ones. I don't know if they fan out or like, or if they just come out. No, they, they fan out. They yeah. fan out. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, and those actually, the new ones, uh, weigh, I think like one quarter. Um, as much as uh, these older ones do, but they collect just as more. They are just as efficient, if not, I think, a little bit more. So um, wow. they they actually provide more power. But yeah, that's just one of several features of the enhanced version, which again, I didn't want to go into too much, but basically the enhanced one is kind of like, you know, another section on the standard version, which as far as the internal pressurized volume goes, you have what looks like two sections and then you just add a third. So you basically add like, you know, like you just add like one third more volume um, and it looks one third taller. It's the stretch limo of Cygnus's. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's the stretch version. And I also just briefly wanted to talk about some other variants which did not happen. There was actually an unpressurized version and that was based on uh, the express logistics carrier, which, you know, we see these... Um, on station. And so they were going to build something like that. I don't know why that never happened. I guess it just wasn't necessary. And one other interesting thing that and I've never heard of this and tell me if you have, but they also had um, a super four segment configuration. So four segments as opposed to just the two or three. Cool. And this one was like very stretched. It was twice the size. I found it in um, a PDF didn't find any other references to it anywhere else. So I don't think it was ever, you know, being seriously considered. This larger version, I guess, would have launched on an Atlas V and not an Antares launch vehicle. I don't know what the lift capacity is, but for these first few launches, that one lifted off on an Antares in the 110 configuration, which has a different upper stage than the current versions, which are in the 120 configuration. So the first launch had a caster 30A second stage, and then the new version, uh, which, you know, again, launches the enhanced version that has uh, the caster 30B, so which is just a heavier lift solid fuel rocket stage. A third thing to talk about the navigation or how does this vehicle navigate, and this is pretty interesting. So, you know, you learn something new. Um, <laughs> I don't know if any other autonomous cargo vehicles do this specifically. But it, it has GPS, it has uh, the star trackers, those standard things. And once it's in 
proximity of the station, uh, it uses like uh, the GPS relative navigation. So it gets this position relative to the station. But what I didn't know about was something called TRIDAR. This is the first I've ever heard of this acronym, which is Triangulation in LIDAR. This is active from as close as 0.5 meters to as far as 2,000 meters away. This does not rely on reference markers. So generally, you know, and we've talked about um, how vehicles, you know, approach station, you have these little reference markers that the vehicle can kind of target. And then that's how it knows its position or at the very least its distance. But this uses laser-based 3D sensors and thermal images to construct a 3D image of the target. You can see a really cool image of what the station looks like to Cygnus. And this is part of, I guess, of like a philosophy that they call mild, which means more information, less data, which is kind <laughs> of contradictory. So, so real quick, let me, let me describe this image. So if anybody has ever seen uh, a depth map image, that's it. That's what this is. Um, yeah, yeah. If, it looks like the images that you get out of autonomous vehicles that use LIDAR. Um, so a bunch of little dots, and then they're usually represented as different colors to show their depth. And then this also uses uh, the thermal images as well. And it basically compares that to, you know, the image, I guess you could say that it has on board because it knows what the station is supposed to look like. And so mm-hmm. that's how it identifies and then knows exactly where it's supposed to go. And like how how much cooler than using the, the black and white markers is this? <laughs> Because like yeah. that's how that's how humans work, right? We we look out the window and we go, oh, I know what this thing should look like. I see what I see. That tells me that I'm in this, you know, six degree of freedom position relative to it. And, and like it, it's so silly that we have to like do all this extra work to get computers to figure out where they are. Like right, positional tracking is like one of the most difficult things that computers can do. I'm mean, oh boy. I said one of, okay, people, one of, because <laughs> I, I can hear the tweets rushing in right now. But like, you know, it's it's actually a difficult thing to do because like normally we have to rely on uh, Doppler triangulation, all this kind of weird stuff or, or, you know, GPS, which doesn't work indoors. But ju- to just do this visually, right, like heat and lasers count as visual data. Or they're, they're light data anyway. They're, they're close enough to the visual spectrum to, to kind of operate in the same way. Like, this is the way that it should work. Granted, it requires foreknowledge of, of a vehicle, but that the amount of foreknowledge that you need is going to get smaller and smaller in the future. Um, and like the foreknowledge of the shape of the ISS and the door that you're going to go knock on is like sort of the smallest amount of, of knowledge that you would really need. And it requires no cooperation or anything like it. This is really cool. And I think of it as kind of like, is this not the philosophy behind how Tesla does or wants to do its autonomous driving that it basically takes the images like rather than looking for, you know, specific markers, it kind of takes the data or like the information as a whole. And then it uses some pretty sophisticated artificial intelligence in order to interpret that. So what sets Tesla apart is the machine learning where they can collect data from vehicles on the road and use that to to uh, train a better driver. But, you know, all autonomous vehicles, even if they're a low level of autonomy, like I, I drove a, a, a rental car last week um, that had lane centering. You turn on the cruise control and it's got radar to have a very accurate distance to the vehicle in front of you and then cameras that can see the lane lines and it would actually center your vehicle in the lane you could take your hands off the wheel and it would drive itself it wasn't very good it was it was very limited and as part of the safety of that if you took your hands off the wheel it would start yelling at you but like that's Hmm. also doing the the 
the same thing in terms of, of visuals, right? It, it does, as far as I know, there aren't any serious commercial or commercially viable, uh, theoretical products on the market right now that require, uh, special markers on the road. That, that was how we first thought about self-driving and it's not how we think about it now. Um, and, and what Tesla does is they, they use that machine learning to, to improve over time instead of building a product and shipping it and maybe doing uh, a firmware update at some point to solve a specific problem. Um, but, but in essence, you're right just about the whole industry, not just Tesla, right? That, that's, we need autonomous vehicles to work in the same environment that humans work for now. In the future, we'll have V2V and, um, V to E of vehicle to vehicle communications of vehicle to everything communications that will make vehicles even better drivers and humans because they'll have information coming in from the, from the stoplights and the vehicles that can see around the corner where they can't and all that kind of stuff. But like hmm. even, even then they'll still need to be able to navigate without any special infrastructure or otherwise they're pretty much worthless. Like w- yeah. w- we don't want to invest in that infrastructure and we shouldn't have to, you should just be able to build a dirt road and have a vehicle drive down it. Like that should be the, the moon yeah. that you need. So, yeah. And I put here in the notes, um, it's kind of like terrain relative navigation, except obviously it's not terrain. Um, but it, I felt like it kind of worked in the same way. So I just put that in there. It's kind of like TRN ish. Um, that kind of put mm-hmm. me in mind of that, you know, shuttle did it. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> so this was first tested on shuttle. The lidar was used at the end of the boom, which was used to do the inspection of of the heat tiles. Um, but I think, yeah, it hmm. was tested on the final three shuttle missions as they approached Sounds station. Right. So, but uh, let's talk about the flight itself. And we didn't talk about, and I didn't actually look into any further why the naming convention works the way it does. But, you know, like we all know that they name um, each Cygnus after someone who's famous in the aerospace community. Um, this particular spacecraft was named after G. David Lowe, who was a former astronaut, and he was also an executive um, at Orbital. Uh, he died of cancer in 2008. I think it was so about like five years prior. So it launched uh, on the 13th, and it was supposed to dock four days later, uh, but there was a data mismatch with timekeeping. So this has to do with the GPS and how the station's GPS and uh, the Cygnus a GPS do timekeeping. So I guess that that's how they get their time stamps, if you will. Lots of people do that. Yeah. So, but there was basically just like a formatting issue. So it was really, you know, they get the same data, but it's formatted slightly differently in some way. Wait, no, the, the, the GPS? Well, how they formatted the GPS data. Like, I'm guessing at least that the Cygnus gets the data and it says, you know, this is what time it is or whatever. And it sends that information in, in a certain format. Then, you know, the station gets it and it says, I can't read this because it's different than how it formats that same data. Oh, I see. So, right, Cygnus talking to to ISS. Man, right. I didn't know about that at all. That's really cool. Let's see. But yeah, it just looks like a formatting discrepancy. So I, I can I can explain the discrepancy. Okay. Um, so both vehicles receive GPS data and all GPS data is is time, right? Like that's that's how um, Bill Clinton was able to declassify precise GPS data. They, they broadcasted the time, but then the really uh, the the very far least significant digits, right, um, were 
transmitted in an encrypted format so that so that you couldn't get the most precise data. Only the U.S. military could get the most precise uh, timing data out of the GPS system. And back in the 90s or whatever, um, President Clinton decided that he was going to um, release those encryption keys so that anybody could get the highest uh, precision GPS data. Because um, that's all it is. It's just time. And so... When you receive those timing signals, they give you, I believe, a week, the week number and the seconds. But the, the week numbers, um, like day of the week, <laughs> like number of weeks in a year, the, the week numbers are relative to a certain date. And, and they actually publish two different, they call, they're called ephemery, the two different start points, like the epic. Uh, defi- the definition of the, of the epoch. Um, one is 1980. The other one is 1999. Um, so if you take the 1980, uh, ephemery and add 124 weeks, you get to the later ephemery, like the, the later definition. So it's kind of like Unix time, which is all relative to a date in the seventies. And it's just the number of seconds that have passed since then. And I, I believe it's a pronounced ephemery. It might be ephemeris. In astronomy, we call it, we would say ephemeris, but okay, we, then we, mispronounce, I'm go with, we mispronounce things a lot, though. <laughs> so. Well, I, I mispronounce things more than astronomers as a whole do, so we're good. Um, and, and so basically, ISS lets Cygnus know where it is, not by specifying a location relative to the Earth, but just by passing along the GPS data that it received. And so when ISS sent that data to Cygnus, it handed it over in the 1980 uh, ephemeris. And um, when Cygnus goes, okay, well, let's do uh, a quick reality check. Oh, hey, this is, you know, a thousand weeks off. Something's wrong. And and that's all it came down to was just using the incorrect reference point. So it's a really easy fix. You just add 124 weeks or whatever it is. Yeah. So that was one delay. Then there was a further delay, which was uh, the arrival of a Soyuz with three new crew members. So I'm guessing that maybe had they not been delayed by uh, the software issue, they could have gotten in there then. Um, but I'm assuming it's just you only have so much time to devote to, you know, like various activities. Uh, they ended up being delayed by a week, uh, which comes to a total of 11 days later. And that that's when it finally docked on or was birthed on September 29th. Thank goodness they didn't have to wait 19 years. You're 19 years away. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was birthed to the nadir side of the Harmony module uh, to the common birthing mechanism by Luca Parmatano. And that was using, of course, the Candidarm 2. So as I said, this was more of like a demonstration mission. Um, but of course, you're still going to carry cargo. So it had 1300 pounds or about 590 kilograms of cargo and it was basically just you know like christmas gifts uh, fresh fruits and vegetables spare parts things like that um, there was also some university nano racks experiments there was also a little christmas card um, which um, karen nyberg opened up um, you can watch the video on youtube of you know the hatch opening and you can see you actually can't see into the Cygnus because it's off to the side. So basically the camera is, you know, positioned against a bulkhead. Like that's all you're seeing. And then the astronauts go in and then they turn right and then they go into the Cygnus. So you can't actually see into it, but you can watch them pulling stuff out. For video purposes, that's way more interesting watching them throw bags around. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'll, I'll put a photo in the show notes of the interior uh, of mm-hmm. the Cygnus. And at this point, were they putting a portrait 
of the person who it's named after on the back wall because they've done that. They've done that for recent launches. I don't think so. I didn't hear any reference to it either because you would think that that would be mentioned. And so um, the other use of Cygnus, as we all know, is that you can load it up with your garbage and other stuff that you don't want anymore. So on October 22nd, they loaded it up with uh, about 1,300 pounds of cargo and stuff that they just wanted to get rid of. Uh, they uh, removed it with Candid Army. It was placed, you know at a safe distance from the station and then from there it basically backs away and then it fires its main engines to deorbit. So that's Cygnus. Um, and uh, hopefully, maybe one day we'll see the super enhanced version, the four segment version. I think that'd be cool to see. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was... That was one of the questions I didn't answer for myself is if it can fly on Antares. It might. But I think I think even for the current version, there are certain flights that have to take place on in Atlas V just because of the weight. Like if you load it up to its full capacity, which for the new version is I believe is three thousand kilograms. Um, I'm not sure you can launch that on an Antares. So you might need an Atlas for that. They, they were first launching on the, those, uh, I believe it was the NK-33s, those Russian engines. And then remember how they had a huge <sighs> mishap back in oh, 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like, I think that was one of the first things we talked about, right? Wasn't that like our first episode or something? Do you remember <laughs> yeah, that? Might I, might I been, think yeah. it was. It was like right around then, and we were talking about how that thing blew up on the pad um, and did a lot of damage. It, it blew up above the pad, right? It went up and then came down. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Well, that was amazing. Thank you, David. Uh, I, I, I like the clue, <laughs> uh, personally. But um, yeah, no, I think that was uh, very interesting and something as seemingly straightforward as oh, Cygnus. Hmm. You know, it's just you know sending cargo up to the station and just how much, how much, how many neat details uh, you're able to tease out of that. So. Uh, thank you for that. Really good. So, Ben, next week is the 21st through the 27th of September. Do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2011, the clue is you are on fire. I, I thought we needed a little bit of what's it called? Affirmation? Yeah, we needed a little bit of affirmation. So I just wanted to remind you, you are on fire. You are on fire. Okay. Well... If you have a guess, <laughs> shoot us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events and just one little event. Uh, Dennis, what is that event, which we mentioned last week, but why not mention mm-hmm. it again? <laughs> yeah, so uh, depending on where you are, so this would be, this is the inf- Inspiration4 launch. And so it's a it's a Falcon 9, and it'll, it is... Has a window from Thursday, September 16th at 0100 UTC to 2400 UTC, so pretty wide, uh, pretty flexible. Just basically keep an eye out for you for that. Keep in mind with that earlier UTC date, if you are, you know, in North America or South America, that's going to be uh, that's going to be the previous day, uh, Wednesday, September 15th. And so, of course, you know, this being a Falcon 9 launch, we'll be flying out of Launch Complex 39A at Kennedy. Again, I mean, there's just so many interesting things to say about this one. I kind of want to give it a little color commentary, but uh, there's just too much <laughs> to go into. Keep an eye out for the Netflix docuseries on it. Remember that it's going to be in an extra high orbit, that it's got the cupola, which is wild, and there's just all sorts of neat things going. And so, okie doke, those are your upcoming spaceflight event. <laughs> spaceflight event. <laughs> That was our upcoming space flighty event. Okay. All right, which means it's time to do over the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jiggies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters.
Burns for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And on today's show, thanks a special thanks and shout out to Zach, Colin, Delta V, Chris, aka Sty Garfield, Deathkin, and Mike for joining us. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.